A very hearty welcome to all our listeners this afternoon. This is Professor David Block, and you are joining me in my regular Tuesday feature entitled Looking Up with David Block. This week our topic is absolutely riveting and state-of-the-art and cutting-edge, and it all revolves around thinking machines, meaning machines which can actually think, and artificial beings, robots. Now, you might think or say that uh, this is rather new, but in fact, thinking machines and artificial beings appear in Greek myths, such as Talos of Crete, or one might think of the bronze robot of Hephaestus, or Pygmalion's Galatea. Human likenesses believed to have intelligence were built in every major civilization, and in fact animated cult images were worshipped in Egypt as well as Greece, and interestingly enough, a humanoid automaton, in other words, a human robot, quote-unquote, was built by a very famous mechanical engineer known as Yang Shi. By the 19th and 20th centuries, artificial beings and thinking machines had become a common feature in fiction. I think of, for example, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. There's a very curious account which I found in conducting research for this afternoon's interview with my guest, whom I'll introduce momentarily, and that is in the 3rd century BC. There is a curious account of automata, and uh, I'd like to read part of the text, uh, part of the Chinese text. Quotes, the king stared at the figure, this is a robot, the king stared at the figure in astonishment. It walked with rapid strides, moving its head up and down, so that anyone would have taken it to be a live human being. It touched its chin, and it began singing, perfectly in tune. He touched its hand and it began posturing, keeping perfect time. As the performance was drawing to an end, the robot winked its eye and made advances to the ladies in attendance. Unquote. How fascinating to have here the story depicted of a robot who walks with rapid strides who moves its head up and down, looks exactly like a live human being, touches its chin, and even begins singing, and apparently perfectly in tune, touches its hand, and it begins posturing, again keeping perfect timing, winking. Cliff Central listeners, imagine a robot winking its eye and making advances to the ladies in attendance. And this goes back to about 910, 920 BC. Staggering. 
My guest today is Michael Mitchley, and Michael Mitchley is one of our is one of South Africa's rising stars in this area of thinking machines, artificial intelligence, and robots. Please feel free to call us this afternoon on zero eight six one triple five one eight nine. That's zero eight six one triple five one eight nine. The Twitter feed is at cliffcentral.com. Instagram, you can reach us on Cliff Central. Facebook, you can reach us on Cliff Central. And our WeChat ID is Cliff Central. If you wish to follow me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is at Starry Galaxy Man. That's at Starry Galaxy Man. And my Facebook link is www.davidblock. One word, David Block, B-L-O-C-K, David Block. .co.za. And so one of our rising stars, as I've already said, is Michael Mitchley. And Michael works in the same school or department as I do. This is a huge school, one of its most productive schools, called the School of Computational and Applied Mathematics, which is headed up by Professor Ibrahim Mamoniat. I often see Michael in the passageways. But the other day something happened which really caught my attention, in the, and that was that Michael Mitchley had won one of our most prestigious awards at the university for basically the best thesis presentation, PhD thesis presentation in the Faculty of Science. No small accolade whatsoever. And so, Michael, it's a tremendous joy to welcome you in the studio this afternoon. I'm actually riveted to hear what you have to tell us about thinking machines, about intelligence, about automata, about the fact that the king was so perturbed in China that he was worried that this robot might perhaps make advances to one of his wives. Now, to kick off, Michael, if I may, uh, could you tell all the listeners, take them down a slow, easy path, Remember that very few of the listeners might be experts at all in artificial intelligence. All of us understand, I trust, the word intelligence. But take us on a nice, easy, calm, of country afternoon ride as to what artificial intelligence actually is and what it entails. Good afternoon, Professor Block. Um, well... I'll try and take you on an easy ride, but I think we've already run into some difficulties in terms of intelligence. Um, so AI is a computer program that displays intelligence, but intelligence as a concept is incredibly poorly defined. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we might say that a current computer is intelligent on certain levels because yes. it can certainly, for instance, perform mathematical calculations far yes. better than a human can. Yes. But we want to maybe differentiate between intelligence that can interact with us on a social level, mm-hmm. that can communicate, that can learn, that can plan, and intelligence that can solve a specific task. So intelligence that solves a specific task is referred to as weak artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And that we've got quite a strong handle on. Mm-hmm. Strong artificial intelligence is intelligence that can reason, plan, learn, 
effectively communicate yes. in a way that we will understand to be intelligent, yes. whatever the metric of intelligence is. Yes. Now, strong AI is something that we are quite far away from. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's we're not even sure that it's actually possible. Mm-hmm. But weak AI, we can certainly put together a program that will be able to learn and plan to solve a specific task. Fascinating. And so, of course, the question really arises, Michael, straight away is, I would agree with you wholeheartedly, is that intelligence is just so hard to define. And I can understand the concept, you know, of weak intelligence. But I think just from a neurological point of view, would you agree with me that we really still so far, we still need to take gargantuan strides in time to come with regard to actual intelligence i do believe that from a neurological point of view we really ourselves still know so little as st paul said looking through a glass darkly would you agree i think that's quite correct i think the one of the central problems with intelligence is that we as intelligent beings can't define what it is yes and i mean this must be very difficult for you therefore because for example one might be building a robot or you have this robot touching his chin in ancient China. And, you know, the question really is, how do you model intelligence? How do you mimic intelligence? Is it possible to transmute intelligence from our brain to that of a robot? Surely that interface is still at a very, very primitive level. As it turns out, there was an attempt in roughly the 70s to build intelligence in the same way that the human brain is put together, that is through Mm -hmm. a massively connected network. And this largely failed because the brain is so densely coupled with connections that we simply cannot replicate it in electronics. But there are many who think that that's probably not the correct way to go about it. Mm -hmm. I think the analogy that people quite often draw is that we didn't learn to build flying machines by looking at birds. Correct. So a connectionist network that's rich in connections, may or may not give rise to intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to say, and we simply don't have the resources to devote to a connectionist network that large. Now, for example, can you, for example, on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, tell me, let's suppose 10 is our uppermost score and 0 our lowermost score. If you look at the most sophisticated robots today, and we'll get into this in great detail, would you say that we're at a scale of perhaps two, level of two, in other words, eight more strides to make? Because as you've said, strong AI is something which is just, it is still sort of uncharted territory. Well, I think it would be very difficult to quantify how far away we are from Yes. Um, in part because as we've explored the field of artificial intelligence and robotics, we've We're not yet at the level of finding answers. We're currently at the level of starting to ask the correct questions. And so uh, the most advanced robot these days may be able to learn in some ways Mm -hmm. and may be able to plan paths and may be able to do specific tasks far better than a human could. But they still are unable to learn how to learn. Correct. Yes. You are here. You are listening to Professor David Block. The program is entitled Looking Up with David Block. 
please feel free to call us on 0861-555-189. You are bound to have myriads of questions on robotics, thinking machines, machines to duplicate the human race, yes or no. 0861-555-189. To reach us on Twitter at cliffcentral.com, on Instagram, cliffcentral. Likewise, on Facebook, Cliff Central, WeChat ID, Cliff Central. You're listening to Professor David Block. I can be reached at, at Starry Galaxy Man on Twitter. That's my Twitter handle. Facebook, www.davidblock.co.za. My guest this afternoon at Cliff Central is Michael Mitchley, one of South Africa's absolute rising supernovae in the realm of AI, which is artificial intelligence and robotics. We're just scratching the surface. We're going to get in a lot deeper after hearing a little cut from one of my favorite musical artists, Enya.
Looking Up with David Block. You're listening to Professor David Block from the School of Computational and Applied Mathematics at Wits University, headed up by Professor Ibrahim Mamoniet. My guest in studio is Michael Mitchley, one of South Africa's rising stars, as I have said, in the area of robots, robotics, and AI, or artificial intelligence. Now, Michael, I simply loved the way you took us through a nice, easy country walk to understand that what artificial intelligence really is, and you put it so beautifully, or you elucidated it so clearly, the difference between the strong artificial intelligence and weak artificial intelligence. But, of course, we have multitudes of listeners on Cliff Central. Remember, you can reach me on WeChat which is perhaps the easiest at Cliff Central, and send your questions to us. But I'd like to ask Michael Mitchley, could you please take us on a very gentle walk as to delineate the link between robotics, explaining carefully what that is to our listeners, and artificial intelligence? Please, Michael. Certainly. So robotics is about the design and construction of mobile machines. Yes. Now, those mobile machines could be something that's, um, for instance, put together, puts together cars in a factory. Mm-hmm. And that would not be an example of artificial intelligence. I because see. the machine is not doing anything autonomously. It is not deciding anything. Right. It's just automatically just, in quotes, assembling the car. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it will assemble the same car every time, which is yes. exactly what we want. We certainly don't want those robots to experiment. Right. But we can... Maybe give the robots a degree of autonomy, and in order to order to do that, there has to be a program that controls it, mm-hmm. and that program that will allow it to plan and reason and learn is artificial intelligence. Mm. So, robots come with varying levels of autonomy. You've got ones that are not autonomous at all, like the car building robots, mm-hmm. and you've got ones that are maybe more autonomous, in which an operator would demonstrate how to perform a task or specify a task to be performed, and the robot must then autonomously decide how best to perform that yes. task. Or full autonomy, in which the robot is free to choose its own actions. Now, the thing that controls the robots, and perhaps the best way of combining robotics and AI, is to talk instead about intelligent agents. And an intelligent agent is something that is able to sense its environment that it's in, and act autonomously in the environment towards a set goal. Yes. Now, if it's acting towards a goal, we call that agent rational. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, all of us are intelligent agents. We all act within an environment. We yes. sense that environment. We perform actions in an environment. Yes. But the difference between something that is purely software and something that is implemented on a robotic platform is actually rather small. Mm-hmm. The fact that the agent is getting information about its environment through a physical robot body or simply through a software interface is irrelevant from Mm -hmm. the point of view of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a question that's just popped up, Michael, on WeChat, I believe, and uh, it says, uh, it reads as follows, Good to hear you again, Prof. I love the show. Well, thank you, Duncan. Michael and I are so honored to have you as such a regular listener and sending in such top-level questions to us on looking up with David Block. But he's asking really just, or he's adding this thought, Michael. He says, 
aren't machines merely an extension of human capabilities and don't they just free us from repetitive, monotonous jobs? What do you think? Well, that's quite an interesting viewpoint where machines and the eventual strong AI and robotics are treated as tools. Yes. Now, if they're extensions of human capabilities, which in some sense they are, we can then start thinking about how they can go beyond human capabilities or perhaps do things that we can't yet conceive of. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting applications of artificial intelligence um, has been in novel designs. Yes. So, for instance, Elaborate, please. There's a procedure called the genetic algorithm where we can use genetics as a mathematical basis for learning. Yes. And you can use these intelligence agents to reach designs that humans would never have been able to think about. Mm. Um, mm. I remember an application where it was used to design a micro antenna. Mm-hmm. And the design for the micro antenna was this completely bizarre tree structure mm-hmm. that turned out to be far better than anything a human put together. Yes. So robots, in a sense, and robots, machines, um, intelligent agents of all kinds, allow us to really go beyond what it is that we are capable of doing. Yes. Now, I have a question for you, and that is this, Michael. For example, after we round off our activities today, we, of course, go to our individual homes. We look forward to sitting down and having supper together as a family. And, of course, you know, I was just thinking in driving to Cliff Central today, imagine if I got home and I had a little uh, robot awaiting me at home. Uh, the robot, for example, could cook my food, could cook our food. The robot would know what food David likes, what food my beloved wife Liz likes, what food our beloved boys Aaron, Nathaniel and Tevye like. Uh, how far away are we from having robots actually in our homes <laughs> which who can actually... Uh, you know, prepare meals for us. So, for example, might know that David Block likes temperature X and that Liz, however, my wife, likes temperature Y and that the boys really like to chill in much cooler temperatures. How far away are we of actually having a walking little guy, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, an, an artificial thinker, as it were, Michael, in our homes? Well, interestingly enough, we are actually closer to that than than you might think. Hmm. Um, you can actually go online right now and order a robotic vacuum cleaner that, while you are out of the house, will start up and navigate around the house by itself and vacuum up after you. That's incredible. Something that... These are all examples of weak AI because they're solving specific tasks. Yes, of course. And perhaps our cooking robot would then be solving the specific task of, of cooking. So... Something that is a strong artificial intelligence, like we perhaps see in the movies mm. with the or the Jetsons robotic maid, mm. that might be far off. But something that is useful to us is Quarkus. Mm. So that's a that's a mundane way in which robots can help us. Yes. Relieve the drudgery of household chores. Yes. yes. Then you've got the more unsettling ways that people think robots can help us, which is military applications, mm-hmm. which is a entire different can of worms. And what are your thoughts on military? Applications. I think it is a terrible application of science. Mm-hmm. I think Elaborate, please. In a sense, if we are militarizing or militarizing robots or roboticizing the military, we're removing a human element from it. Yes. 
And one might say, oh, but that means that fewer soldiers will die. But who's on the other end of that gun? Yes. So yes. I think it is, it's a very dangerous path to go down. Mm-hmm. And a lot of researchers have flatly refused to work on anything with a military application. Mm-hmm. With good reason, I think. Now, Michael, could you just tell our listeners, please, what your actual research at the university entails? Of course, you've just been honored with this huge prize within our Faculty of Science, and I'm just so proud of your achievements. Uh, clearly, this is going to be a PhD amongst PhDs. Could you just lead again, gently lead us, listeners, lead us down a country path of telling us on Cliff Central what you actually, what is your dream as you sit at your desk and work at your computer with regard to what we are talking about, which is robots, thinking machines, robotics, and artificial intelligence. Well, I'm focused on a very specific subtask within within artificial intelligence, and that's working towards something that will learn how to learn. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, that's fascinating. We can certainly train an intelligent agent to perform a specific task. Yes. If we provide it with the framework of what it is supposed to learn within that task. Yes. So an example would be if we tell the robot that these are the specific parameters it has to learn, and it will learn those parameters as it performs the task mm-hmm. through various learning algorithms. Mm-hmm. But my research is about what if we don't necessarily know those parameters? Mm. What if we don't know what the robot is supposed to learn as it performs the task? Right. So it's a ways of learning what it is that we need to know as we need to know it. So in other words, just if I might just summarize that succinctly, what you're really doing is looking at different algorithms, as it were, of helping these robots learn how to learn. And let's take a specific example. Let's suppose we have a team of robots and they're each playing soccer, thinking of you know the great interest in soccer and FIFA and so on. How far are we from having, A, a team of robots on a field? And secondly, how far away are we from having those players, those robotic players, intelligently playing the game? I'd love your viewpoint on those two questions. Well, interestingly enough, um, we're currently about 10 years in the future from when that happened. The RoboCup soccer tournament has been running for, the, I think, r- about the last 10 years. Yes. And they're currently building towards a goal that by 2020 or 2030, a team of humanoid robots will be able to outplay humans. That's extraordinary. The team of robots will be able to outplay humans. How would they do this? Would they just have such a tremendously high echelon of the learning algorithm peaking at its best? Is that really the cutting edge here? Well, largely it's it's a combination of two very difficult problems in robotics. It's a control problem, yes. finally controlling the robot with um, the cameras and sensors that it has. And it's also a learning problem where... We can't necessarily train a robot how to play soccer. We don't necessarily no. know the best way no. to play soccer. Yes. And even for a professional football player, it would be quite difficult to get across. Mm-hmm. So the challenge there is in specifying ways in which the robot can learn to play soccer. Mm-hmm. And I think the exciting possibility of robots being able to outplay humans is that they might find novel ways of playing. That's extraordinary. And of course, what's so interesting here is that robots enter the world without any emotion, as it were, no feeling. 
They simply learn how to learn via these algorithms, and there they go onto the field playing soccer uh, in the future. Even better, Michael Mitchley says, than um, Messi or some of our other legendary giants. Uh, we're going to just take a short break, but I would like to remind you of our WeChat ID, which is Cliff Central. Our telephone link, 0861 You are listening to Professor David Block. The program is entitled Looking Up with David Block. And my guest in studio is Michael Mitchley, an expert on artificial intelligence, robots, and Robotics. Back to a cut by Enya. How well do I remember watching many years ago an incredible program by the late Carl Sagan and the program was entitled Cosmos. It was a riveting watch. Here you had one of the world's true legendary giants, Carl Sagan, and he was taking us on a gargantuan ride 
through majestic universe in which you and I live. Now, of course, you and I do live on terra firma, on the planet Earth. It's on the planet Earth that you dream, that you live, that you move, that you aspire to become more than you already are. Of course, we are very aware, for example, of climate change. We discussed that with Clem Sunter just a week or two ago. Climate change, other potential catastrophes which could kill or wipe out the human race. So we went through a whole lot of those scenarios with Clem Sunter. But today my guest in studio is Michael Mitchley, who is one of our uh, real experts, certainly within our school, of the computational and applied mathematics at the University of the Witwatersrand. And I'd like to ask you, Michael, uh, the thought about death and the thought about being w- annihilation, the thought about being wiped out, as I've just said. Uh, could robots do this? In other words, is it possible, is it feasible that one day these clever, in quotes, robots who've learned to learn to learn to learn how to learn could actually annihilate the human race and kill us all? So I think that's a very familiar Hollywood story, that of something that we'd now call a strong AI that for some reason hates or resents humans, whether it's in some playoff on uh, the story of Frankenstein or just because that's how robots are. And I think it makes for excellent storytelling, but it's not very good science. Mm -hmm. So you might be familiar with the concept of Asimov's laws of robotics. Yes, but if you could elaborate for our listeners, please. So it is basically an ethical guideline for robots. Yes. Uh, that they can't hurt humans, that they can't kill humans, yes. so on and so forth. But that's an ethical guide, of course. That's right. Yes. So it turns out that, to a large degree, I don't think those are even necessary. Robots as, or intelligence agents rather, would be motivated by vastly different things from any human intelligence. They're to think about something along the lines of hate or resentment or anything like that would be so far outside the bounds of anything that we can conceive of in artificial intelligence that it would be something that you need to work towards rather than Mm -hmm. something accidentally arising. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about good and bad with robotics, we're not talking about good and bad robots in the sense of good and evil. We're rather just talking about tool design. Yes, which is good. I like that. Yes. So it's possible to design a bad hammer that when you swing it, the head will come off and it will hurt your thumb. Mm -hmm. Likewise, it's possible to design a bad robot that could injure or kill humans. Mm -hmm. But that's not the fault of the robot. That's the fault of the people who designed it. Right. In fact, in robotics, typically if you've got a robot that's operating in a environment with a lot of people, it needs to be what's called compliant, which means that the servos and actuators within the robot, the things that make it move, Mm -hmm. are weak enough that they cannot injure a person. Mm-hmm. But going back to the idea of a strong AR. Yes. A strong AR would be, I think, vastly different from anything we could conceive of as an intelligence. Mm-hmm. I think they would be motivated by such different things. For instance, would uh, an intelligent agent have any need for a concept of self preservation? Right. There would. Of course, those are really ethical questions coming indeed, in. Indeed. Yeah. Right. So the thing that um, 
we have in common as intelligence agents with intelligence agents that we are designing is that we are motivated to maximize a reward. Yes. In our case, it's um, on a purely brain chemistry level mm -hmm. that we want to perhaps maximize the amount of dopamine we receive or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. In a robot's case, it might be something just mathematical. Yes. Some objective function, something that it needs to work towards. Yes. And aside from that, there would be very few similarities in the intelligences. Of course, what's really interesting is the whole role here, when you talk of annihilation, of uh, ethics. And I suppose when it comes to teaching robots how to learn how to learn about ethics, um, I agree with you that the concept of good and evil doesn't really exist presently, perhaps, in robots. But there is the possibility, at least in my mind, given the vast scales, for example, of terrorism, for example, on our globe, that maybe some groups of people might start teaching robots in a very different way, perhaps, as to, you know, to feel hatred towards somebody else by activating a certain network or algorithm within that person's uh, framework. So while it is far-fetched, I remember listening to the landing on the moon, Michael, in the year 1969, and it was far-fetched. It just didn't seem true when Kennedy said, made that famous speech, and we shall put man on the moon. Uh, the ethics still seems to worry me in the sense that robots are still controlled, if you like, uh, by humans in the sense that there's this human input. And if you have a group of terrorists who are intent on annihilation, is it possible, do you think, for them to impregnate within their psyche, and of course not psyche, just quote-unquote, the notion of hate or hurt or kill? Or is that a road one simply cannot go down? Well, I think one could certainly build a robot that is designed to, say, identify enemies in some sense mm -hmm. and eliminate them. I think to ascribe to that robot a feeling of hate would then be anthropomorphization. We're reading human things into a robot that doesn't have it. Yes. So yes. while it is possible to build a killing machine, I don't think it's possible to build a killing machine that would necessarily run out of control and kill everybody. Yes. Well, that's certainly very, very reassuring. And I think what Michael Mitchell is putting across so eloquently today is that robots really don't decide between good and evil. But robots and robots learning how to learn can be of awesome value. Now, of course, I wear my hat here today as a professor of astronomy, professor of astronomy and computational and applied mathematics. And, of course, you know, I'm, I'm riveted at present, Michael, to the landing, uh, the, you know, the, the landing soon of a little spacecraft, robotic craft on a comet, the Rosetta mission. And this is certainly riveting stuff for the future. So my question to you really is, we'll discuss how robots can help us on Earth, but I'd really love your expertise uh, with regard to thinking about the domain um, about robots in space. What could robots actually do? Um, could you elucidate and take us on again a gentle ride with regard to space Robotics. Well, I think space robotics is an incredibly exciting field. 
it represents some of the extremes of robotics in terms of how autonomous the robots have to be and how robust they have to be. Because we're sending these robots out as explorers in our study. Wonderful. And in that they are explorers, we have very little idea what it is that they're going to be exploring. Yes. So they need to be extremely robust to harsh conditions. They need to be robust enough to adapt and plan and learn and know what it is that they need to report back to us. Good. And the exciting thing about space robotics is that it's not a possibility. It's a fact. Absolutely. The, Isn't that incredible? Yes. It's amazing. And I think to a large degree, this is because we're sending the robots so far out that they mm -hmm. need to be autonomous. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if you could tell me how far away the Cassini probe is, for example. Well, for example, the Cassini probe is in orbit about the planet Saturn. So that's certainly, you know, millions of kilometers from us right at the present moment. It is awesome. And yet just look at the auto, the automata, if you like, on board. Yes, exactly. Because it's too far away to remote control. Rely. Absolutely. So the Cassini mission, the Mars rovers, they all display yes. a very high degree of autonomy. Yes. yes. And that is very exciting. We're not only making robots that can learn we're making robots that can learn what it is that they want to teach us that's awesome so for example michael if we think of uh these little craft on mars for example spirit opportunity curiosity as you say we are not there to drive the robot as it were but it's incredible to think that the robot can learn what it should learn about where to go, about which rocks to analyze, about which samples to take remotely. So I think autonomy in space really is taking one to the absolute cutting edge of space exploration and specifically with this Rosetta mission too. It is extraordinary to think that the human mind has been able to conceive uh, automata operative on these distant worlds, is it not? Yes, indeed. And perhaps some of this has been out of practicality. Yes. We don't necessarily have the technology right now to send out a team of humans through to Jupiter Correct. to observe Correct. it. It's just they're just too far away. Yes. So Whereas a robot doesn't need an oxygen supply, it doesn't need food, it doesn't need any kind of life support. Mm. All it needs is a power source, and we've got one readily available in the solar system, thankfully. The sun blazing away hydrogen to helium gas with a lifespan of another 4.5 billion years. And we can also send robots on one-way missions, which we would not be able to do, obviously, with astronauts. Yes, absolutely. So well, hopefully not. Yes. So robots have expendability. Yes. yes. So we can send them at a fraction of the cost to far more distant places. Um, they can also obviously endure far more G-forces than humans can, so we can accelerate them very far out. Yes. And if they don't come back, well, a lot of them are designed not to come back. Perhaps only the designer weeps. Yes. Uh, Michael, we have a very interesting question from one of our listeners, Colin Atterbury, and he's asking the following question. Remember, my guest in studio is Michael Mitchley from the School of Computational and Applied Mathematics at WITS, headed up by Professor Ebrahim Mamoniat. Michael, the question by Colin Atterbury is a riveting one. He asks you, do you think that the song by Zager and Evans, uh, which pertains to the year 2525, um, aptly sums up the future of mankind? And he gives this quote, 
from that song by Zager and Evans applicable to the year 2525. And I read the quote, quote, Your arms are hanging limp by your sides. Your legs got nothing to do. Some machines doing that for you. Unquote. Your thoughts, Michael? Well, I think this goes back to the idea of household robotics and robotics generally freeing us from chores. Yes. The idea that robots could take our jobs, I think some would see it as a danger, but this might finally free us to do things that are more interesting than working. Of course. If there are no jobs because robots have filled them all, then there's no drudgery. And we can't think of this in our current economic terms in that we'll now all be unemployed and we won't be able to earn money. Because in that sense, robots will be producing what it is that we need. Yes, yes. One would hope that then, aside from a few very specialized careers, everyone would be free to choose whatever it is that they want to do with their time. Yes. So it is... The transition to that sort of economy, however, could be dangerous. Mm -hmm. In that... For example, in America at the moment, there's a big debate about raising the minimum wage for fast food workers, for example. Yes. And about how they can be replaced with automata. Yes. And that kind of transition where certain jobs have been taken over, but other jobs still exist, is certainly a dangerous one. Yes. Yes. We have a lovely question. Wow. Listeners, thank you so much for all these amazing questions coming through to our program, Looking Up with David Block. And this is a question for my guest, Michael Mitchley, an expert on artificial intelligence and robotics, who recently won one of our really most prestigious prizes, I would say, with regard to PhD theses. And the question really is this, from Duncan. Uh, How far are we from the following, Mr. Michael? And the question is, half man, half machine, question. Well, prosthetics is a very interesting idea, and I'll talk separately about prosthetics and cyborgs, which is organic machines. So prosthetics is something that we are advancing steadily in, Mm -hmm. and we're seeing very exciting things coming out where it's no longer talking about replacing limbs, but augmenting them. Wonderful. Which is, to my mind, one of the most exciting things possible. That's awesome. And there we're looking at prosthetics now that are coming out that are controlled by the person's nervous system. That's very interesting in terms of regaining what they have lost already, Mm -hmm. if we're talking about prosthetics. And we're also talking about going beyond human capabilities. Mm -hmm. So that is within the near future, as a definite certainty. Mm -hmm. Organic machines, however, are a different approach where we don't consider robots that are necessarily 100% um, constructed out of silicon and wires. Yes. And there's been some research into that along the lines of taking, for instance, rat brain cells. Yes. And using those to build neural networks. Yes. Um, I'm not too certain where the state of research is there, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. It's quite far outside my bounds of research, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's... Something that perhaps a biologist would be able to answer. Absolutely, that. yes. But it is something that is being considered by many as a strong candidate for mm-hmm. for the future of robotics. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, when we're talking and answering Duncan's brilliant question with regard to half man, half machine, it's not really that the machine thinks for us in the sense that we have our brain already with our intelligence 
But it's really, for example, somebody involved in an accident and loses their arm, loses their hand. I have already seen these in action where the machine learns to learn how to pick up food. It is really uh, state-of-the-art. And there, I think it's just awesome to see how your field of research in robotics is helping this person actually eat again. It is So, in a sense, that person, I like to look upon it this way, though, Michael, full man, half machine, meaning you've still got your your brain and it's operative with its intelligence. So it's full man. It's, of course, missing a limb or two. Uh, and that is where robotics really kicks in so forcefully. Would you agree with that, Michael? I would agree. And I would add to the idea of a full man, half machine as being something where we're talking about going beyond human capability. Elaborate on that a little. So if we're talking about, for instance, a robotic arm and if we project to the near future where we are talking about a robotic arm that is able to feel and touch and sense yes. as well as a human arm can. Yes. And then we start thinking about, well, all right, we've got this robotic platform. What more can we do? And perhaps we want this arm to be able to feel electric fields. Hmm. Then we start talking about going beyond human capability. And maybe it's not something that is then just to replace a lost limb, but maybe it becomes something of a choice. Mm-hmm. But... That, again, I think is getting into ethical gray areas. Mm. And How far are we from robots actually learning the art of perception? In other words, perceiving what is happening in an environment and then acting accordingly. Uh, perception, of course, varies so vastly in the human domain. In your world of robotics and artificial intelligence, how far are we in that uh, along that specific road well it's an interesting interesting question because there's several different answers i could give to that yes and it would largely depend on what we define as perception yes if we're talking about a stream of data that's coming in zeros mm-hmm. and ones mm-hmm. then a robot is perfectly proficient at perceiving its environment correct but as soon as we start talking about the specifics of how it's perceiving for instance if the robot is perceiving its environment with a camera then that becomes a much more difficult problem than mm-hmm. simply sensing it. Mm-hmm. We as humans have had untold billions of years to evolve visual cortexes. Yes. And these do a tremendous amount of processing in terms of what we can see. Yes. They make sense of the world for us. Yes. Without which, we'd just be receiving raw sensory input and we would not be able to understand what it is that we are seeing. Mm-hmm. That is the current state of machine vision. Mm-hmm. So... Anything that we would like to do, for instance, perceiving the edges of an object, mm. we have to program into a machine to be able to do. Now, Michael, I have one question. My guest is Michael Mitchley. We're talking about the incredible, awesome, fascinating world of robotics and artificial intelligence. And, of course, I suppose one of the things which we enjoy so much, uh, following Mr. Mandela's great example, is the question of human rights. And, of course, you know, my mind immediately starts pondering about that question. Could robots ever start demanding civil rights, quote, unquote? We certainly place great degrees of emphasis in South Africa on our rights, so beautifully uh, impregnated by Mr. Mandela. But now taking it forward to the world, your world of robots, is it possible for robots to ever demand, as it were, rights and civil rights in particular well i think we can certainly conceive of a situation in which a strong artificial intelligence 
places a demand for rights. And I think in that instance, it will be something we'd need to take seriously. But I would question whether or not the robots of the near future would be capable of even conceiving of such things. Mm-hmm. Um, just as a robot may have, or an artificial intelligence may have no sense of self-reservation, yes. it may not in any way that we can comprehend care about how people treat us. Yes. So we're talking about a vastly different experience here. Mm. Certainly, mm. I think if a robot were to ask for civil rights, mm. then that would mean that it is something that that robot cares about, mm. and it would be something that we'd need to think about mm. quite seriously. But were I to hazard a guess as to when this may happen, mm-hmm. I would say it would happen within the lifetimes of most of our listeners. That's incredible. And now, of course, you've brought into focus uh, the listeners, and they're bound to be myriads of listeners out there who would be asking the question, Professor, how do I, as someone, say, in uh, grade 10 or grade 11 or grade 12, how could I get involved in this incredible area of the design of robots and robotics? Do I need to have a degree? Do I need to have a lot of money? Do I need to go to university? A two-minute answer to that, please, Mike. Certainly. So I think there's a perception of robotics as something that's only for big Western or Eastern universities. Yes. yes. But I think that perception is false. And we've got many different robotics programs throughout South Africa. And even at WITS, we've got several avenues in which students could go into robotics. Mm-hmm. But students needn't wait until they reach university to get involved. This is something that can be done at age five, even. Incredible. All that you need is on the robotics building side, you'd need access to some mechanical tools to be able to put together the robots mm-hmm. and or a computer. And if you don't have access to that, you can certainly start thinking about some of the issues behind robotics mm-hmm. and start formulating your own ideas about how learning to learn can take place. So this is something that really only needs an open mind and a blank piece of paper. Open mind, blank piece of paper, computer... And there you have it. You can start developing your own algorithms to actually take you to the cutting edges of robotics and artificial intelligence. You know, Michael, as we end off, and what a privilege it's been to have you in studio today, I just think how incredible it was that Autonoma are really nothing new. Thinking of this quote from China, the king stared at this robot in astonishment. It walked with rapid strides. This is 922 BC, moving its head up and down. Uh, it in, it, it uh, sings in perfect tune. It winks an eye and makes advances to ladies in attendance. It goes to show that the human race dreams about, in a sense, replicating you and in replicating I. We are listening to Looking Up with David Block, uh, Cliff Central. Always remember to feel free to contact me on the WeChat ID, Cliff Central, and on our telephone number. As we play out this afternoon with uh, Paint the Sky with Stars, which will be one of my absolute top hits on Enya, Michael, um, I'd like to warmly invite all listeners to a very special guest next week. 
and that will be our Vice-Chancellor at the University of the Witwatersrand, Professor Adam Habib. So feel free to join us on Cliff Central to listen to an interview by Professor Adam Habib. But Michael, it's been an absolute joy, honor, privilege and pleasure to talk to you about the world of robotics. We have some 40 seconds to play out with Enya. Thank you very much, Professor Block.